I entitled today's sermon, Who is Responsible for Your Salvation, for Your Sanctification? You know, we saw all these songs, we just sang them all about our, our progressive sanctification, our becoming more holy and like our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our wonderful example to follow. Mark Twain was a great American author, but he did not have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said this, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. You think, well, what was he thinking? What was going through his mind when he said that? And it quite possibly could have been that the thought of a good example was an annoyance because it's exceedingly difficult to achieve the status of that example. And I just said, our ultimate example of humility, obedience, and submission is found in Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, Jesus is spoken of as being in the form of God, yet he did not grasp equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to that. Instead, he actually came to earth, left his abode in heaven, fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit, came, became a man, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if that's where the story ended, if it ended with Christ's humiliation, with his death, we all have no hope because we would not have eternal life in Christ, but to the praise of God, the father, that's not where the story ended. Christ was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf right now, because God exalted Christ as the supreme ruler of all. He's in the position of authority at his right hand. One day he's going to come back. And Jesus, he was given the name that was above all names, the name Lord, which means that he is the supreme ruler and he is the sovereign Lord of all the universe. And one day in the future, everyone in heaven, here on earth and under the earth will bow their knee and confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord to the glory of God, the father. I'm sure most of us here today have already done that. We already bend the knee. We already confess Jesus as Lord. We believe in him. There's going to be many, many people one day in the future that unwillingly and in terror will be forced by God to bow their knee and confess Jesus as Lord. Yet they will not go to heaven. They will be cast to hell for the rejection of the son of God. They never have Christ as their Lord. You know, have you ever talked to someone that has said, Hey, I should not be judged on the actions of my life. I'm not responsible for them because God didn't choose me. I'm not his elect. So how in the world can I be judged for my actions? It's not fair. If God didn't choose me, then I can't help the way I'm living. Is is that what the Bible says? 
Absolutely not. So before we get into our passage, which indeed will be in Philippians chapter 2, I want you real quick to turn over to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses for you. I just want to show you the condition of the human heart. I'm going to read verses 18 through 22. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Drop down to verse 32. We see that right after Paul, he just lists a bunch of evil deeds that unbelievers participate in. This is what he says. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So people aren't cast into hell because God did not choose them. They get sent to hell because they rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. In verse 18, it says that these people, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They, they know everything that they need to know about God to point them to Christ, that if they go down that road, God will reveal himself through his son where they can be saved. Because God draws people to his son. Yet at the same time, they are responsible to repent and believe. On the day of judgment, unbelievers will be without excuse because they willingly chose their sin as opposed to submitting to the authority that God has in their life. You see, God is the one who initiates salvation and grants salvation. But he also holds humans responsible to repent and believe. Repentance is that you are living a life of sin and you're running into sin. And so when God gets a hold of your heart, you repent, you radically turn away from your sin and you run like mad to God through his grace, through his power. And you got to ask yourself, once a person is saved by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, are they responsible for their progressive sanctification? Which means progressive sanctification means your pursuit of Christ likeness, becoming holy, becoming like your savior. So once you're saved, is it your responsibility or is it God's responsibility to make you more sanctified? Well, the answer to that question is yes. To both aspects. You and God are both responsible for your growth and becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So find yourself with me in Philippians chapter 2. And our text today are two verses. We're going to look at verse 12 and 13. 
Here's what the inerrant, infallible word of God says. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, these verses are specifically talking about a believer's progressive sanctification. And it describes the coin of redemption from both sides. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty. See, you can't be spiritual in and of yourself. Nor can the spirit of God live his life through you unless you are yielded to him. So this morning, we're going to just look at two things. We're going to look at our role as believers in sanctification in verse 12. And we're going to look at God's role in our sanctification in verse 13. So let's begin with our role. Look back at verse 12. It begins with the word or words, either so then or therefore. And this is used to draw a conclusion from a preceding statement. So what Paul is doing here is he's referring back to the example of Jesus Christ, whose perfect model of submission and humility and obedience was just a few verses back in verses five through eight. You can read that on your own. But what we find out here is that as believers, we are to be living our lives in direct correlation to how Christ lived his life. And when Apostle John, he penned in 1 John 2, 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And he also wrote in John 15, 10, this is what Jesus said. If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. See, we are to respond to our sanctification with obedience to God, just like Christ was obedient to God, the father. That's our responsibility. We are to obey God's commandments and Christ is our example to follow. You know, Paul, I I love Paul. He's my, outside of Jesus Christ, Paul is my hero of the faith. I love this man. And he described obedience in very relational terms. He described it as, in terms as knowing Christ, being like Christ, and serving Christ. So you have to realize as believers, we don't passively sit on the couch And just think by osmosis, because we have a Bible on the shelf, that we're going to know God's word and we know how to live the Christian life and become more like Christ. It's not a passive act at all. It's very active. We have any runners here today? So think about this. You did that too. So are you going to do the 90 day challenge? I kind of saw this too. So yeah, that's what I thought. But we, uh, as, as a runner, if you were going in about six or seven months, you're going to run a marathon, 26.2 miles. Do you think for six or seven months leading up to that race, you'd be sitting on the couch, never once going outside to run, 
Never once getting on a treadmill, working your legs and your, and your body up ready for the race. And then come the day of the race, you're like, well, I better get there. It's time to run. You know what's going to happen? If it was me, I wouldn't even make it past the first mile. But if you finish the race, you're going to do very poorly if you finish it all. When it comes to our spiritual growth, we do not get saved and then say, hey, Lord, you know what? If you need to, to work with me and you want to use me for your kingdom purposes, I'll be over on the couch. I don't really want to, to strength, you know, use some strenuous activity for you, but if, if you need me, I'm over here. And I, I'm going to use what Paul would say, may Ganetto, may it never be said of a believer that we just sit on our laurels and do nothing for the Lord. We're called to be holy and righteous. We see that in Christ. G. Walter Hansen says this, when the path to obedience to Christ becomes steep and dangerous, pleasure seekers look for an easier way. Religious tourists hunting for sensational entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, and emotional excitement will jump on the newest rides and take quick shortcuts, but they will not be found with pilgrims on the long, hard road following in the footsteps of Christ, who is obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul Paul's call to unflagging Christ-like obedience will not be popular in a world that so highly values going fast and having fun and so quickly rejects enduring pain and submitting to authority. Listen to this. But the essential characteristic of the wise who build their community on Christ is their consistent obedience to him. That's it. You cannot call yourself a Christian and don't obey Christ. It's impossible. Our life, yes, as believers, we do sin and we confess our sin and God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if our life is patterned by sin, don't call yourself a Christian because you're not. The Bible is very clear about that. And no matter what we face in life as a believer, we look to Christ as our example and we follow him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Looking back in verse 12, Paul, he calls the Philippian believers his beloved. And he does that because he is the founder of the the church in Philippi. So he had this very special relationship with these believers And he loved them deeply and he wanted them to be unified as a body of believers through humility. And he knew that the only way that that was going to be possible is if those believers would continue submitting to Jesus as their Lord and Savior and by following his example. You see, Paul, like any faithful preacher, knows his flock. And he knew that these believers would undoubtedly face trials and obstacles and failures as they endeavor to become more like Christ. So Paul, he gives them a word of encouragement before he gives them a command. He says in verse 12, just as you have always obeyed, 
That, that was Paul's way of commending the Philippian believers for their faithful submission and their obedience to the will of God. And that word obeyed, it comes from a compound Greek verb where the meaning is to place oneself under what has been heard and therefore submitting and obeying to what you've heard. So the Philippians, they'd already placed themselves under the teaching of Paul. And they were practicing, putting that into practice every day of what Paul taught them. And they were submitting to it and they were living it out loud, obediently following the word of God. And you know, what, what did Christ tell his disciples before he ascended into heaven? It's known as the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what they were were to continue to do. They were to take what Christ had taught them and teach others for the purpose of them becoming saved. And then those people in turn would tell others about Christ and on and on and on it would go. You know, if you're a student and your teacher gives you an assignment to read a book, and then when you're finished with the book, you have to do a three page report on the details of the book and you never read the book. Do you actually think you're going to get a good grade on that report? There's no way. You didn't read the book. You have no clue what the book says. So you're going to get a failing grade, which you so readily deserve. See, if you read the book, you'll do well. If you don't read the book, you're not going to do well. Now you switch back to our spiritual life. The only way as a believer that you can live a life of obedience and submission to God is to know the word of God. Therefore, the only way to know the word of God is to read the word of God. So brother, that challenge is huge. By having a 90 days, you read the entire Bible. That's going to be a a quick way of getting sanctified. It's a phenomenal thing to do because the, the word of God is living and active. It helps us through our daily life and it points us always to Christ. And in that process of becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ, we as believers, we grow in sanctification by diligently placing ourselves under the authority of God's word by obeying what we read. We don't just read it, put it down and walk away unchanged. We read it for the sole purpose of understanding who God is. What are his attributes? How can I lay my life down for him? What is he calling me to do as a believer? If you don't read God's word, then you don't know what you're supposed to be doing for the, for the work of God. In verse 12, back in our passage, we see that Paul, he's urging these Philippian believers to, to not only obey God's word while he's there in their presence, but he also says, hey, I, you need to be faithfully following the word of God, even when I'm not in your presence. And I've got two sons, and and as a parent, I I want my kids to to obey God's word when they're still in my home underneath my protection. 
But I also want them when they move out that they are going to be following God's word. I mean, I think anybody that has kids, that's your desire. You want that to happen. So whether I'm with my boys or not, I want them to live in obedience to God as they look to Jesus Christ as their example. By the grace of God as a parent, all I can do is study God's word and and pray that God shines through me and that, that my boys can see that there's an inward transformation that's taken place, not by me, but by God Almighty. But the ultimate example for my boys, it's not me. The ultimate example for you here today, it's not me, not your pastor. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we look to. And you know, Paul, he loved these Philippian believers and, and probably there were a few in the church that were really attached to him and and really put a huge um, burden on him as though it was his responsibility for them to grow in Christ. But Paul reminds them that their spiritual responsibility was to Christ, not to him. So even in Paul's absence, Paul is letting them know that they were obligated to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They were to continue to seek out the truth of God's word in their life and all that entailed for them. How to play it out every day. Paul, he said back in chapter 1, verse 27, he commands the Philippians this. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of what I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see, Paul's point is that there is never a time in a believer's life that they are not responsible for following and obeying the word of God. Believers are not to be primarily dependent on their pastor, their Bible study leader, fellow believers, or any other person for their spiritual growth and strength. Our supreme example comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And our true power comes from the Holy Spirit who resides in us. Aren't you so thankful for that? Aren't you so grateful to the Lord that he has given us his spirit and his son as an example for us to follow? After commending the Philippian Christians for their obedience, Paul, he ends verse 12 with a command. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to me very carefully. I don't want anyone here in this room to misinterpret that verse. Paul is not saying that you can somehow earn a right relationship with God by the works that you do. He's not saying that at all. There are scripture after scripture after scripture in the Bible that clearly states that you cannot earn your salvation by your good works because your good works are filthy rags in the sight of a holy, perfect judge of the universe. So then you have to ask yourself the question, if Paul's not referring to our own good works to earn salvation, 
Well, then what's he talking about? Well, he's conveying the fact that believers are to work out the salvation that God has already worked into their heart. See, God initiates, he implements, and he culminates his plan of salvation. Yet, at the same time, God holds people responsible to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Like I said earlier, if a person rejects Christ, that is why they get cast to hell. Period. And you know, I don't have time to talk about it today because it would take about four or five sermons to do this, but maybe no area of doctrine is more consistently debated than that of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's huge. But yet salvation, it's a gift from God. And at the same time, he requires a person to believe. This doctrine, it's all over the Bible, yet people get so worked up over it. Saying, how can that be? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's because we have finite minds. In our mind, the two doctrines, God's sovereignty, human responsibility. How in the world does that coincide? How do they perfectly fit together? Well, we're still in sin. God isn't. And you see, when we as mere humans try to reconcile these doctrines together, ultimately what we end up doing is creating heresy because we don't do justice to either one of them. But in God's infinite wisdom, he has blended these two doctrines together beautifully. So a believer must Trust these doctrines by faith. Because that's exactly what the Bible teaches. We don't pick and choose what we like. Ooh, that one I can handle. This one I can't. And start tearing out some pages of our, of our Bible. It's the infallible, inerrant word of God. We don't trifle with it. We don't add or take away from the written revelation of Jesus Christ. So moving on in our passage, we see that work out. I mean, what does it mean to work out salvation? It means keep working out to completion, to ultimate fulfillment. This is a command that has a continuing emphasis. See, Paul, he wasn't stating that on Monday and Wednesday and Friday, you pursue Christ. And then the rest of the week, you can just sit on your laurels and really do nothing for, for the Lord. I mean, that's not what Paul is stating at all. He's letting believers know that the salvation they receive from God is now to be worked out in their life for the world to see on a daily basis. But how do we do that? We do it by diligently and constantly pursuing spiritual development in our lives through the word of God. That's it. And yet how often do we set our Bible on the shelves, collecting dust, thinking, oh, I own a Bible. When's the last time you picked it up? When's the last time you read it? For the purpose, again, of being holy and becoming more like Jesus Christ. 
Christ died for us, bled, buried, raised on the third day. Now he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. He's coming back for us. And yet so often as believers, we just sit around going, ah, I'm saved. I'm good. He's taking me home. Man, I long for the day when I can see my Savior. He says, well done, my good and faithful slave. We don't work for Christ out of a sense of duty. And I, I got to read the Bible again. We do it because, oh my goodness, my Lord and Savior died for me, rose for me. He's coming back to take me home. How can I not want to spend time with him and enjoy his presence and be infused with his power and then tell others about the love of God and what he's done in my life, what he's done in your life so that they, by the grace of God, can be wakened up from their spiritual death and be brought out of the kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom in his son's kingdom. That's where we get our redemption and forgiveness of sins. But you know, far too often, we don't want to do that. Because that requires a lot of effort. To spend time in God's word. To read it, to meditate on it, to memorize scripture. To have it deeply rooted in your heart. It takes time and energy and effort. That unfortunately, far too many of us just don't want to have the time to do that. But we want to watch football. We want to go shopping. We want to bake. We want to do all these other things but I'll give God five minutes at the end of my day when I'm already almost tired and want to go to bed. That shouldn't be us. We need to be renouncing sin in every form and we need to put it aside and replace our sin with holy, righteous living where we take every thought obedient or captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, the second portion of 2 Corinthians 7, 1 states, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And Paul, he penned in Romans 6, 19. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And the Bible, it's filled with similar verses that call for believers to work out their salvation. Go back to school. Think about if you ever had, I didn't, but if you ever had trigonometry and you've got this trigonometry problem from your math teacher and he says, take this home, look at it. Here's your, here's your homework. Go solve it. Come back. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Well, that student, he needs to work out that problem to its conclusion, but he needs to work it out to the same conclusion as his math teacher. That's the idea here in verse 12. When you take your Christian life, you are to be working it out to the same conclusion that Jesus Christ has for you. Well, what is Christ's conclusion for you as a believer? He calls you to holiness and blamelessness. That's the conclusion that Christ, he is drawing you through sanctification to become more like him so that we can bring him joy and pleasure and praise and worship and honor that he and only he deserves. 
In Philippians 3.12, Paul tells his beloved friends, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. See, Paul was working out his salvation and he calls all believers to do the same thing. And we're to do so with fear and trembling. Fear describes fright or terror as well as reverential awe. And trembling, it's the act of shaking or vibrating rapidly in small movements. Both of those are proper responses when we look at our own sinful nature and our desires and our propensity to, to be tempted and to go along into sin. We're bombarded every single day, every minute, every hour of the day, we're bombarded to sin through the billboards we see, through the the programs on television, through movie ads, going to the grocery store and you look and and all of these smut that are on these uh, magazines. I mean, it's everywhere, everywhere. But that's why we need to aggressively pursue sanctification with the help, obviously, of the Holy Spirit. The Lord said in Isaiah 66, 2, but to this one I will look, to him who is humbled and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Beloved, do you tremble at the word of God? Do you realize that the God of the universe who gave his son for you has left you a beautiful book for us to understand, to know how we are to live our lives in this life and prepare us for the next. And we don't fear the Lord in the sense that we think if I sin, he's going to cast me to hell. That's not the fear that we're talking about. It's a reverential fear. It's, it's the holy concern to make sure that we are giving God the honor that he deserves And we want to avoid his chastening in our lives when he's displeased with us because of our sin. You know, this fear, it guards against temptation and sin. And at the same time, it gives us a motivation for obedient, righteous living. One commentator says, godly fear protects them from wrongfully influencing fellow believers compromising their ministry and testimony to the unbelieving world, enduring the Lord's chastening and from sacrificing joy. See, we as believers, we should have just this fear of and dread of our sin. And we should have a longing to do what is right in the sight of the Lord God Almighty. And we do this out of a deep Love and adoration for the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to offend God. We don't want to displease or grieve him. So in obedient perseverance, we diligently press on in this pursuit of holiness. You know, the author of Hebrews, he wrote in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Christ is our ultimate, ultimate example of humble, obedient submission to the father's will. And we as believers are called to a continual pursuit of righteous, holy, daily living. So far this morning, I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, but we've looked at our responsibility in our sanctification in verse 12. So let's jump over to verse 13 and let's see what is God's part in our sanctification. Again, it says, for it is God who is set, who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as believers, we work out what God has already worked in. And as a matter of fact, without verse 13, it would be impossible to fulfill verse 12. God is the one that initiates, implements, and culminates our salvation. Yet we still repent and believe. Jesus conveyed that truth to his disciples in the upper room discourse the night before he was put to death, as stated in John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, he can do nothing. It is Christ that allows us to live out the Christian life for the glory of God. And in Greek language, the first word of this passage starts theos, which is God. So Paul, he begins the verse by stressing that it's God who is at work here, that he is the agency doing it. He is the one that energizes the believers through his spirit to live lives that are holy and righteous and obedient to his word. And God grants people salvation through faith and he expects them to grow in their sanctification. But at the same time, he gives you the necessary tools and resources for that purpose. God's not an impersonal God, like the God of false religions who are very impersonal and remote and indifferent. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants you to grow in and be mature in Christ by obediently obeying his word. But at the same time, when we sin, he lovingly disciplines us to bring us back to the path of righteousness So God, he didn't just give us a set of absolutes and then leave us on our own devices and say, hey, go ahead and pursue Christ's likeness now. Hope you uh, work that out for yourself. He doesn't do that. God continually protects his children according to his everlasting covenant and promises. When he lavishes forgiveness on us through cleansing us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And he calls us, he gives us, he empowers us to spiritual service through the Holy Spirit in us. 
because we are willing vessels of grace wanting to be used by him. And that Greek word for work, it has that connotation of, of causing something to function or to carry into effect. So although the believer must walk in obedience and work out that salvation with fear and trembling, it's very clear that God is the one that has already given them the power through the spirit to bring about that necessary effect and produce a worthy walk. So Paul encouraged these believers that, that God was for them and not against them. He let them know that not only did God have their best interest at heart, but he is actively working on their behalf. And why? For the sake of his own good pleasure. Salvation that comes from the Lord is packaged in his grace that allows us to live out that salvation for the world to see that we truly have been transformed in our hearts. And we're no longer children of darkness, but we're children of the light. God has given us his spirit to empower us to work out that salvation that he already bestowed upon us. So you can overcome temptation because the spirit lives in you. You can obediently submit to the word of God because the spirit lives in you. God gives us his spirit so that we can be growing in sanctification. And in speaking about that victory we have in Christ, Paul penned in Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Beloved, God is for us. And because he's for us, he works in us by giving us all things through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, people, they get so caught up with a purpose-driven church or a purpose-driven life. But Paul here, he's referring to a God-driven purpose. This means that our purpose as believers, our desire, our willingness to live and to work for God comes from God. Hansen states, God is the great originator of human willing as well as human working. That is why Paul says that we work with fear and trembling for it is God who works in us to will and to work out. Are you diligently working out the salvation that God has already worked in you? Because when we try to live our Christian life in our own strength and power for our own ambitions, then our human wills fight against each other and it leads to disunity in the church. And when we are not submitted to God's will, then ultimately it's going to be headed in the direction of division. But praise God, when our wills are bound with God's will, then we're headed in the direction of unity. So the purpose of God working in us is for his good pleasure. It's all about God. God wants us to think and do what pleases him because he is greatly satisfied when we, and he receives enjoyment when we obediently follow his words. And since God receives pleasure from our sanctification, he grants us the resources to fulfill that pursuit. 
A believer's ultimate purpose is to become more like Christ through diligent, continual obedience and worship to God. And that brings God pleasure. I close with a quote from MacArthur. It just beautifully wraps up this, these verses. Every Christian should understand that sanctification takes his strenuous effort, but is nonetheless totally dependent on God's power. Like many other truths in scripture, those seemingly irreconcilable realities are hard to understand. Having done all they can, believers are to give God all the credit, just as the Lord instructed after they have done all things which are commanded there to confess. We are only unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Friends, I'm here to urge you today to heed Paul's imperative, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God provides you everything that you need to excel in sanctification, which brings him pleasure. Right after I pray, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would love to come and talk with you and share with you how you can have a personal relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your scripture. We pray that we will be willing vessels to do what you would call us to do, to live holy, obedient, submissive lives to you, to God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we can take your truths to this world and let them see that you have completely changed us and they can have new life in Christ as well. To the praise and glory of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.